bum bum bottom 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 bum
an acceptable environment from scratch. And you know what? There are plenty of artists who are not scum that we can support and endorse. Which brings us to another bit of awkwardness. Yeah. Last week, we covered Batgirl Year One, written by Chuck Dixon and Scott Beatty and illustrated by Marcos Martin. We loved that comic. We love, love, loved it. Yep. At the time, we did not know about Chuck Dixon's reputation as a homophobe and alt-right racist. It took some listeners pointing out a few key tweets and stories about Dixon for us to have our eyes opened, and we really appreciated having that pointed out to us. Again, it is very disappointing to learn this about an author of a book that we enjoyed and promoted. And it's awful how his behavior throws a taint on the brilliant work of Marcos Martin and Scott Beatty. If we had known then what we know now, we probably would not have covered Batgirl Year One on the podcast. Like we said, there are plenty of other Dick and Bab stories we can highlight, and we will. Yeah, and so what's cool about this week's show is that we're going back to the Bronze Age of DC Comics, a time period you know I've explored very little of, Lisa has explored very little of, but it's an era that first brought Batgirl and Robin closer together, specifically in the pages of DC's Batman Family series. Um, last night, Lisa and I watched... Uh, Joel Schumacher's two Batman films. Me for the first time. Lisa, I had never watched them. That's right. Lisa for the first time. Uh, me for the many, many time. <laughs> whatever number that is. For me, Batman has been uh, Michael Keaton, Christian Bale, Ben Affleck, and no one else. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you. Well, you like Adam West. You're oh, a big yeah, Adam, Adam West, West fan of too. Yeah. Uh, you, but what's interesting about the Schumacher Batman films is that I've always used them. Uh, well, I've always compared them to the Burton films or the Nolan films or my comics or what have you, or the, or even the 60s TV show. And when you do that to them, uh, they, they, are, they are signaled out as like, oh, they're not what I want them to be. Right. Watching them on their own, which was a first, because Joel Schumacher has recently passed away and there's been lots of articles. Uh, there's actually been several articles defending the Batman Forever and Batman and Robin films. And I wanted to just look at them as is on their own and try not to compare them to what's come before and what's come after. Uh, of course, what I ended up doing is really looking at them as I would Batman family, right? Like it's weird. It's not my favorite kind of Batman. This universe is bizarre. They're nineties AF. Oh, they're super nineties. Um, the it's everything is neon and ill fitting. Yeah. And yep. black lighty. And they are very much the product of their director. They are so Schumacherian. And But they feel like a labor of love. That's right. And 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 watching it in that context, I kind of I don't know if I would say that I fell in love with them again, but Lisa certainly enjoyed them. I was utterly charmed by them. Yeah. I found them to be so cute and so fun. Though um, we started them kind of late, so I did fall asleep during the second one, whichever well, one Well, you missed is. like the last 15 minutes where Batgirl shows up and, and helps take down Mr. Freeze. But that's how you can tell I am really enjoying a movie is if I doze off 
because um, if I, <laughs> if I, because that means that I am completely engaged in the film and the worries in my head go away. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. So I, I was very thankful that I'm in this Batman family mindset when I went to go appreciate what Schumacher brought to Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. And watching it with you uh, and, and seeing you just take to them immediately and... I didn't have to have that chip on my shoulder and go like, well, I don't know if I like him as much as, you know, uh, Nolan. Well, <laughs> of course, they're not going to be as good as Nolan. Of course, they're not going to be as good as your favorite Batman comics. But they do share some DNA with the camp of the 60s TV series and the camp of the Bronze Age. And we have always preached the uh, the gospel of all Batmans are valid. There yes. are There is room in the universe for all types of interpretations of these characters that we love. And just because we prefer one over the other, perhaps doesn't mean that that other doesn't have a place in the cinematic universe. Yeah, yeah, but I I think, this is the last thing I wanna say about the Schumacher films, is watching it again through Lisa's eyes, Lisa fell hard, you fell hard, for Tommy Lee Jones and Jim Carrey as Two-Face and the Riddler as like this buddy rogue duo. I thought that they were so funny. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a way, like Tommy Lee Jones isn't that guy in any other movie. No. So it's so bizarre to see him so over the top, but Jim Carrey is like that in every other movie. So he's kind of, being this kind of shepherd, like, come to the silly side, Tommy Lee Jones. And, like, to me, I think that uh, Jim Carrey wouldn't act like that if not encouraged. Oh, sure, sure, You know sure, what I sure. mean? We've seen Jim Carrey be all types of characters, you know, Man on the Moon, Truman Show, the one where he puts the weird hat on his head, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We've, since the <laughs> 90s, seen, like, all facets of Jim Carrey as an actor. I personally think that he is a wonderful actor and a little bit of a whack job, but I, I kind of find it uh, hopefully harmless. We talked about it yesterday as they feel like a couple. Like you could apply a lot of what we've talked about on this podcast to the relationship of the Riddler and Two-Face as seen in Batman Forever. Um, you listeners don't know the terminology yet of the Bowen family systems theory, but in that first Schumacher movie, we're seeing what's called a fusion. We're watching two people who were once strangers now enter a relationship in which they're emotionally dependent on each other. And um, it's like, it's so fun to watch. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. So if you have not watched Batman Forever or Batman and Robin since the 90s, uh, and, and you, or maybe ever, like or, myself. Or ever, like Lisa. And, and, and you've felt a little uh, negative emotions towards them. Now's the time to revisit them and, and, and look at them as objects unto themselves. The way that we do when we look at this series, Batman Family from the Bronze Age. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, let's talk about the ages real quick. Uh, there's the Golden Age, which is 1938, uh, with the debut of Superman in Action Comics number one, all the way to 1955. 
And that's the start of the Silver Age with the debut of the Barry Allen Flash in showcase number four, all the way to 1970. And that's the kickoff of the Bronze Age. But unlike the Golden Age in the Silver Age, there is no single event to kick off this era. It mostly coincides with the publication of Green Lantern, Green Arrow, written by Denny O'Neill, rest in peace, and illustrated by Neil Adams. Lisa loves this book. I find it super fun. Jack Kirby also ditches Marvel Comics at this point and joins DC Comics where he'll start his fourth world saga in the pages of Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen. And yeah, here come the new gods, guys. Uh, And longtime DC Comics Superman editor Mort Weisinger exits to be replaced by Julius Schwartz, who made it his mission to tone down the more absurd aspects of these stories, bringing a little bit of that Marvel realism to the DC world. It should also be noted, by the way, that Julius Schwartz is another one of these guys who has a swarm of stories surrounding him regarding his grotesque harassment of women. A quick Google search will send rageful shivers down your spine. Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah. But you know what? We got to get all this out on the table, guys. So within the Bronze Age, along comes this little Batman anthology series that could, Batman Family, the first issue of which was published in September of 1975 and ran for 20 issues until November of 1978. Although after DC uh, imploded in the ni- in the late 70s, 1978, I think to be exact, where they canceled 24 ongoing titles, including Batman Family, the series merged with Detective Comics for another 15 issues until January of 1979. Uh, the comic began by collecting reprints of classic stories, but would eventually start pumping out original material. Yes, um... There were Batman solo stories within its pages and even some man bat as hero stuff. But the best bits involved Robin, the teen wonder, no longer a boy and Batgirl, uh, the uh, redheaded dare doll uh, (laughs) as the dynamite duo. Goodbye, dynamic duo of Batman and Robin. Hello, the dynamite duo of Batgirl and Robin, the teen wonder. They're hip because they're young. They're hip because they're young. Uh, And this is where Dick and Babs's relationship went to the next level. Originally, we weren't planning on covering these stories because I thought they were not available in an affordable collection. But again, you trusty CBCC listeners came through. We love you. And thanks to at seven underscore soldiers on Twitter, he pointed out that the majority of Batman family, or at least the Robin Batgirl stuff, was reprinted in the Robin the Bronze Age omnibus, which came out earlier this year. And you know we had to fork down the cash for that. And actually, you can get it for a pretty decent price. You don't have to pay that ridiculous cover price. Uh, There's plenty of copies of the Bronze Age Robin available. So, very excited to get into these. We're not going to cover all 20 issues of the series, but we do have four specific issues we want to cover for four specific reasons. But we'll get into that in a second, because Lisa... We got to check in with our love guru. How's Dr. Roberta M. Gilbert helping us out this week? Dr. Gilbert, with her book, Extraordinary Relationships, A New Way of Thinking About Human Interactions, is going to help the dynamite duo manage their anxiety so they can be better partners using Dr. Murray Bowen's family systems theory. Last week, we got a little taste by covering the info in the front matter, two forwards, 
and two prefaces, Dr. <laughs> Roberta M. Gilbert is nothing if not thorough. This week, we're covering part one, Relationships We Live In, chapters one through eight. Actually, mostly chapters one through six. Sorry, Roberta. We don't got all day. Please allow me to ask a seemingly stupid question. Mm. Why do we need relationships? Trick question, because I'm going to tell you the answer. Oh, okay, because I had answers. I had answers. Here's the quote. After air, water, food, and shelter, it's the quality of our relationships that most often determines the quality of a person's life. Our ability to make and maintain relationships is a factor in our emotional, physical, intellectual, social, and even economic well-being. Think about it this way. What would your quality of life be if you tried to address every aspect of it entirely alone? Not that great? Not that great, no. <laughs> Last, that family. Yeah. Last week, we talked about what the Bowens theory refers to as the togetherness force, or the tendency of humans to make relationships. Togetherness is certainly not exclusive to humans. We see it throughout the animal kingdom. Birds do it. Bees do it. Even educated fleas do it. I'm not. I'm actually not sure about about fleas, but uh, like other primates do it. But it's certainly not universal. Pretty much all bears, the Hawaiian monk seal, and the great white shark are all animals who live the solitary life outside of mating and child rearing. And revenge, Jaws the revenge. That's right. Yes. Though I do think that he is in like a relationship with. Um, oh, Lorraine Gray, the, the Brody family? Yeah, because yeah, they're in conflict. That's true. <laughs> Human beings Sorry. have evolved. No, you're right. Human <laughs> beings have evolved to be social animals. And many of our perceived individual problems that feel insurmountable or nebulous may actually have social solutions. It's like the old proverb goes, many hands make light work. The Bowen Family Systems Theory addresses how we use our relationships to address the heavy work of our emotions. We've all had that feeling when we are stressed out and we go pour our guts out to a friend, family member, or a therapist. Afterwards, we feel a lot better, right? If we then go to that one person for every time we feel overwhelmed by our emotions, that person will turn that person will in turn become overwhelmed and stop being receptive and issues can arise. Well, I hope the therapist uh, can deal. <laughs> no, like think about a what about Bob? Like Bob was just popping up <laughs> He's whatever. He's a terrible therapist. <laughs> but you need boundaries. That's what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, I, okay. With okay. your therapist. Okay. Uh, I guess with everybody. A system is a group of individuals whose emotions are continuously transporting from person to person. The Bowens family systems theory differentiates between emotions versus feelings. Emotions are automatic physiological and mental reactions that we've evolved for the sake of survival. They are insistent and hardwired into our physiology. So they are hard to voluntarily change, especially if they've been impaired by excessive anxiety or illness. Emotions have a myriad of functions, including protecting us from danger. Sometimes the emotion is based in reality, sometimes it's not. Stage fright, for example, is a fight or flight response, but when you're on stage, you're not actually in any real danger. Uh, Lisa, tell that to Roy of Siegfried and Roy. <laughs> but um, ching Thank you. A good thing to keep in mind is that emotions are sometimes based in reality, but are 
always based in perception. Feelings are emotions that we are aware of and have named. They have been intellectualized and given a narrative, i.e., I applied for a job and I didn't get it, so I'm disappointed. Or you said something critical to me and I'm and it's something I'm sensitive about and now I'm angry. Thinking in systems de-emphasizes the naming of feelings and instead analyzes the intensity or anxiety of the emotion and how it distributes itself throughout the system by either relieving or increasing the anxiety. Anxiety in life is inevitable, so it is important to have healthy relationships to help us cope when it rears its ugly head. The Bowens theory rates the health of a relationship by maturity. In a mature relationship, when acute anxiety arises as a result of the environment, an individual is able to process some of the anxiety before passing it on to other individuals in the system who then absorbs and processes, so the anxiety decreases over time. In an immature relationship, the individuals do not process the anxiety before passing it on to another individual who then does not process the anxiety and what was once circumstantial anxiety now becomes chronic anxiety. What helped me process this concept was the idea of sponges. I love this. <laughs> Thank you. I, I pre-gamed this concept for Brad. It's so good. The anxiety of life is like water, and individuals are like sponges. When there is a spill of anxiety, it's helpful to have a nice, dry sponge. But once that sponge is soaked through, it is no longer useful against the next spill. The more sponges you have, the cleaner the mess, and the more the individual sponges are able to dry out over time. I like the sponges thing in relation to also our spoons metaphor. Oh, right? yeah. Where we only have so many spoons to offer, right? And once you've given out all your spoons, you're spent. I think it's pretty telling that all of our relationship <laughs> metaphors go right to the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. When our individual emotional sponge is all soaked through, when we are overtaken with anxiety, we begin to take predictable social postures to avoid taking in any more, which Dr. Gilbert put into four categories. Conflict, distance or cutoff, Overfunctioning, underfunctioning reciprocity, and triangling. And you're gonna you're gonna explain those to me? Here I go. Oh yeah. A yes. bullet pointed list. Conflict arises when individuals feel no longer capable of giving in or adapting to relieve someone else's anxiety. Think my sponge is full and I'll fight you if you try to put more water on me. <laughs> High conflict relationships tend to go through cycles of fighting which can be verbal or physical, emotional distance, followed by intense closeness. The arguments contain comments that are hypercritical, accusatory, and competitive. High-conflict couples tend to isolate to avoid embarrassing outbursts and then go through periods of gratifying closeness because they're starved for social connection. So if we think about at the beginning of Batgirl Year One, uh, Barbara Gordon was doing everything to fight with her father. He, she yeah. was feeling all of the anxiety of now she's a woman, she's supposed to have direction in her life. And well, and she had a purpose. She knew she wanted to be with the police force, and he was like, no, no, no. Right, and so 
they were just bickering and fighting all of the time. Distance happens when one or more individuals disengages emotionally to avoid taking on more anxiety. Think, my sponge is full, so I'm going to avoid water altogether. Distance can take the form of flight, which is physically leaving the perceived source of anxiety, like spending more time at work, having a physical or emotional affair, substance abuse, or stonewalling, which is acting non-responsive to another person's emotions. Mm. A distancer may think that they are helping the relationship by getting a periodic break from the emotional intensity, but distance often gives rise to other issues, such as jealousy, resentment, or the sense that the other individual is unloved. Um. The distance actually intensifies the emotion because then you go off and you just think about the other person in your head continuously, like a little, like, like, like a little whirlwind. And uh, it doesn't get relieved. An example from Batgirl Year One would be when uh, Commissioner Gordon was, or Lieutenant Gordon, whatever, was 100% certain that his daughter was Batgirl. Instead of confronting her about it, he completely withdrew in his work. He shut the door to his office and they didn't talk at all. You know what I thought about when you were describing this is I go back all the way to our first couple, Scott and Jean, and specifically within the Grant Morrison run of New X-Men, the way that Scott retreated into Emma and Ah. the psychic affair that they uh, committed uh, so that he didn't have to deal with his feelings towards Gene at all. And it didn't mean that he didn't love Gene. Yeah, he was just a scaredy cat. Yeah. Also a bad dude. Morrison Morrison made Scott Summers not a great guy. (laughs) We've taken our stance on this. Although Claremont didn't treat him too well either. Don't (laughs) anger the listener! (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Cut off is the extreme of distance posture. When an important relationship is either formally or informally ended, one may feel a brief period of euphoria after the cutoff and can go much of the time without thinking about that other individual, but then thinking about that relationship brings anxiety. I've had a few relationships, friendships in particular, where I have experienced cutoff that still bring me heartache. The most important thing to know if you want to resolve a cutoff and rekindle a relationship is that it doesn't matter who takes the first step. So it might as well be you. And this is a behavior you see all the time in comic books, right? You know, that's how people get solo titles or go to other teams. You know, Wolverine's like, X-Men, I can't deal with you anymore. I'm piecing out to Alpha Flight. And clearly... He has a lot of unresolved emotions from that cutoff, and so he's got to go back. He's got to go back to the X-Men. Yeah, and he will go back. (laughs) (laughs) Overfunctioning, underfunctioning reciprocity is when one individual is seen as the caretaker while the other is perceived as the one who needs caring for. So one sponge will take on more water than it can reasonably handle while the other becomes accustomed to never taking on water at all. Both partners may seem one individual, the same individual as the problem, but when we think in systems, we know that both individuals are responsible for the posture, and their level of equal emotional immaturity is what attracted them to each other in the first place. The overfunctioner will often reach a point of exhaustion from putting the needs of others in front of themselves 
where they'll just drop all needs at once and mm. are like, see, now none of us are functioning. How do you like that? We see this in the relationship between Batman and Robin all of the time. Think about the Schumacher film. Robin is going like, how come it has to be bat everything? How come it can't be like, why can't I have a Robin on? Why is it not a Robin mobile? Like he's he's desiring for a little more leash, a little yeah. bit of more responsibility for his own actions. And it's that like conflict that, um, it makes it so that Poison Ivy can come in and, and ruin everything. Sure, and that's kind of why Robin leaves the Robin name behind and becomes Nightwing eventually, right? He has to be his own vigilante. Yeah, he was being infantilized. Yeah, he needs his own city. He's got to get out of Gotham. He's got to go over to Bloodhaven. Resolution in overfunctioning, underfunctioning reciprocity is found when each partner takes equal responsibility for themselves, even in a partnership. Triangling is when an anxious pair tries to relieve their anxiety by focusing on a third individual, most often a child. So the two sponges are like, who cares that we're full of water? Look at that sponge over there. The result is over-functioning anxious parents and an under-functioning anxious child. In common parlance, we might refer to the child as spoiled. There are other common manifestations of triangling, including when you have a conflict with someone, doing, talking to everybody about that conflict except for the person you're in conflict mm -hmm. with, mm -hmm. gossiping, having an affair, taking a morbid interest in other people's problems, and thinking more about a child or anyone else's than one's own marriage or life. Some might say that Brad and I are triangling when oh. we talk in depth about the troubled relationships <laughs> of our favorite comic book couples. We're triangling right now. I was thinking about the spoiled Robin. Which is the spoiled Robin? Is it Jason Todd? Is it Tim Drake? Is it Damian Wade? Which one's the spoiled one? Stephanie Brown? Which one? I don't know. I don't know. I tend to lean that Tim Drake is probably the most spoiled Robin, but that might just be me. I mean... If we're talking about Talia Ghoul, maybe that's Damian Wayne. I don't know. Sorry, sorry. Let's move on. I do not speak fluent Robin, so I, I don't know. Any relationship can become overtaxed when there is no efficient way to relieve the acute anxiety that comes with the everyday stress of being a human. But when we find that our accustomed posture of relieving stress is not working, we tend to redouble our efforts, becoming more conflictual, more distant, more functional slash dysfunctional or triangle even harder. So what's a sopped up sponge supposed to do? Here are some recommendations I've gleaned from Dr. Gilbert. Another bulleted list. Nope, I'll make it numbered. <laughs> Number one, individualize as a means of calming yourself. Take a moment to observe the physical signs of your rising emotions. Maybe you feel a tightness in your chest. Maybe your face is getting hot or your thoughts are getting cloudy. We commonly refer to the sudden rise of negative anxious emotions as feeling triggered. Sometimes thinking about these symptoms objectively can help take you out of yourself and calm your emotions. Hannah Gadsby in her latest stand-up special referred to the feeling of being triggered as going pufferfish, yeah. which I found super helpful. It's really good. I'll even call it out. Like I'll, I'll think to myself, I've gone pufferfish. Yeah, and I've started to do it as well. And suddenly I'm observing the emotion 
not embodying the emotion. Number two, be objective when you see defensive postures arise in your partner. Try not to ascribe value or feel judged when your partner goes pufferfish on you. They're just having an involuntary physiological response. Take a moment to observe the posture and to remain calm so you're in a position to help them process their anxiety. Number three, try to acknowledge stress by relieving the stress that originates in your family of origin. When we are born, we are generally introduced to an existing system that the Bowen's theory refers to as the family of origin. As we age, when we take what we have learned from relating to our family of origin to a new relationship, the process is called fusion. Very important to the bat family. Oh, right? abs yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Fusion is the genesis of a new relationship. We take whatever unresolved anxiety water from our family of origin and bring it into our new relationship, making us less thirsty for more anxiety water. Mm. My metaphor is falling apart here. No, I like it. I like it. All of that is to say, if we're able to address some of the chronic anxiety from our family of origin, we are more mature when we fuse into new relationships. Number four, find more fusion. If we're constantly taxing one relationship, be it familial, a good friend, or a romantic relationship, try fusing more relationships. The greater our social circle is, the more relief we get from the rising waters of anxiety. Again, why do you think the Bat family is so huge? You know, bring in some outsiders, bring in Wildcat. You need, you need support. If there's anything you get when you live in Gotham, it's anxiety. Yeah. There's a lot of intense emotions going on. If you find yourself at home and anxious, try widening your social circle by joining a club making a friend, or finding an online community. The overwhelming feeling of ennui you're experiencing may be undiagnosed loneliness. And the ironic thing about loneliness is that it makes us feel more insular and we withdraw even further into ourselves. Loneliness, without getting too dark, can be fatal. When you feel overwhelmed, do try to talk to someone, and when you suspect that someone in your social circle is experiencing loneliness, reach out. Yeah. In these four issues of Batman Family, we're going to observe all kinds of relationships <laughs> and in all kinds of crazy postures, not just Dick and Babs. I think it would be helpful to observe and identify these postures of these relationships and gauge whether we think these relationships are mature or maybe have some growing to do. I mean, there's a lot of growth that needs <laughs> to happen after these four issues. Enough about romance. How about more about grow-mance? Oh, boy. Oh I just boy. came up with that one. I'm going to write a book. I don't know. I mean, you probably could. You've, you know. You can't do any worse than a lot of these people it's that we've been reading. It's going to be how we make our millions. Oh, yeah. TM, uh, copyright. Fingers crossed. <laughs> but looking at these comics specifically, uh, for this week, we're covering the Invader from Hell segment from Batman Family Number 1, written by Elliot S. Magan and illustrated by Mike Grell. 
Till Death Do Us Part from Batman Family number 11, also written and illustrated by Elliot S. Magan and Mike Grell. The Man Who Melted Manhattan from Batman Family number 13, written by Bob Rosakis, penciled by Don Newton and Marshall Rogers, with inks by Bob Wyasek. And Find the Batcave and Rule the Underworld from Batman Family number 15, written by Bob Rosakis, penciled by Lee Elias, and inked by Joe Giella. These issue titles are like, mwah, they are pure poetry. Yeah, yeah, delicious, delicious, delicious. That's like that. I, I keep saying the word delicious, but I mean, they're so tasty. They're delectable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to savor them. There really is no point in running down the plots of every single issue right now. We're going to get into it. Uh, they're wacky, weird, and wonderful. Dick is no longer a boy, he's a teen. Uh, he's actually a teen titan, uh, but he's also going to class in New York City at the prestigious Hudson University, Lisa. You guys should look on the Wikipedia page for Hudson University. Very fun. Yeah, and uh, he's sometimes visiting slash interning for his pal Barbara Gordon in Washington, D.C., where she's now a congresswoman representing Gotham City. How cool is that? It's pretty cool, actually. And as you'll see in the first issue, unlike Batgirl Year One continuity, neither Dick nor Babs know each other's secret identity. But it takes only one issue to figure things out. They're, they're detectives. Yeah, yeah. They're not the world's greatest. That title belongs to Batman. That's right. And don't uh, you dare try to take it from him. But they, they they eventually get there. They eventually get there. So, Lisa. Yeah. I'm so excited to talk Batman family now. I want to get into the meat of these four issues. It's going to get colorful. It's going to get colorful. So I want to start with the cover itself. I to, think to that the first issue. I think as we go through these four issues, every single one of these covers warrants a little bit of back and forth conversation. Right. So we have Batman family uh, and it says introducing the new dynamite duo. And we have Batman off to the side of the panel and he's saying presenting the origin of the Batgirl Robin team up. Now, whether you listeners are looking at this cover or not, like if you, if you hear that without looking at it, you're like, okay, we're now going to see the story that, that finally brings Robin and Batgirl together as the dynamic duo. Who could they be possibly attacking? Well, we see Barbara Gordon, Batgirl. She's on her Bat cycle, which is super cool. It's, I think, even cooler than the one that she rides in the Batman uh, TV series. And Robin is leaping in front of her, seemingly off the bat cycle, right? Yes. And they're attacking their foe. And who is their foe? He's wielding a really gnarly, nasty, flaming sword. It looks like some kind of founding father. Now, we don't know who this founding father is, but we're going to learn when we turn the page to the splash page that that is Benedict Arnold. None other. None other. And you're like, oh, is that like a robot Benedict Arnold? No. Hell no. No. It's, it's a specter. It's the Benedict Arnold. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, one of the highlights of Batman Family are these introductory splash pages. You know, something that, like, Jack Kirby, like, killed at. Like, this this was, like, his game. He was a master of these. And Mike Grell on Batman Family number one, doing a darn good job himself. Yeah, that he is. I like that um, they introduced right away, not only is he Benedict Arnold of the past, he does have magic powers. Yeah, because we see in the splash page, it's the same sort of situation as the cover. Bat cycle, Batgirl, Robin leaping off. And now this Benedict Arnold in the splash page is riding a horse, and he's not alone. 
He's got some uh, revolutionary soldiers with him. There'd be redcoats. But what's weird about that, Lisa, is yes, they are redcoats, but uh, aren't the redcoats? Well, no, British. Benedict Arnold, he was a traitor. He's hanging out with the British. No, that does make sense. That does make sense. So Benedict Arnold saying, how can you two hope to stop me, Benedict Arnold, (laughs) when I've got the armed might of the ages behind me? And then Batgirl saying, heaven only knows, traitor. And then Robin responds, but we're sure going to try. And then we get the title. Can this dynamic, or sorry, dynamite duo guard the very soul of America against the invader from hell? Hold up. Benedict Arnold, he's escaped hell? Yeah. Yeah. I like the reveal at the end of of what exactly the soul of America is, because it's way narrower than you think it is. <laughs> yeah. But it's legit. It is the soul of America. That's right. So then when you turn the page to get this story off and running, the structure's a little weird, right? So you get splash page. This is what you're about to see, Batgirl and Robin against Benedict Arnold. And then you have Barbara Gordon as the congresswoman addressing Congress. I feel like that's how every comic book starts. Like where you get the like, you get a splash page of the height of the action, and then it's like eight and a half weeks But this is what's even weirder about this is splash page, here's Barbara Gordon in the present, now wanting to talk about what happened weeks ago. We're going Inception. Yeah, so we're going back even further. Oh yeah, there are layers. (laughs) We're going layers down. What I enjoyed about Batman Family is how funky these structures are. They're not A to B to C to D, plot lines. They are A to D to C to G. And then actually we're going to jump to Z and then we're going to come back to H. And just and just hold on because if you didn't get H, there will be an epilogue. Yeah, there will be an epilogue. That's right. So Barbara Gordon's like, look, we all just went through this traumatic thing here in the nation's capital. Let's talk about what went down and what what actually happened when Benedict Arnold r- appeared oh, once more. Then we get a f- uh, flashback. So that was that, a, Wayne's World. I yeah, got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah you. you're thank very you. good. Very good. And she is record. She's in a television studio, and she's recording a spot uh, for the bicentennial. And of course, her young intern Dick Grayson is holding the cue cards when magically Benedict Arnold from American history appears, and uh, of course, like out of thin air. Uh, let. You know, like specters do. Yeah. And she uh, feigns feeling faint. And then Dick Grayson is like, I'll help you get out of here. And then we have this super cute moment where they're in the hallway where they're like, okay, I have nothing suspicious to do. I'm no longer faint and I'm no longer helping you. And then they both go into like separate little doors or whatever (laughs) and uh, quickly change into their costumes. Yeah, yeah. It, it, It is like they have to go out of their way to avoid each other uh, changing into their identities or even acknowledging that they could possibly be related to Batgirl or related to Robin. And you can see why in the second issue they're like, yeah, they need to know. (laughs) They need to know who they are because this is annoying. If they like if one of them wasn't one or either of them wasn't skirting off to put on a secret costume. Like the other one would be like, hey, he he just dropped me off in this hallway while I was feeling faint. That's rude. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Cause you know, maybe Robin, you should like hang out with this person who has just fainted. Maybe you should wait until somebody else at least cares for her needs. Maybe she needs to go to the doctor. Or yeah, I know. 
Alarming. So they both return to the studio. There is- In costume. In costume. Not at all weird. There's a light fisticuffs, and um, upon doing his double flying kick, he realizes that there's more substance to this Benedict Arnold than your usual specter. Yeah. He's he's uh, solid, not unlike a stone wall. Robert in the Silver Age, he had a lot of experience with ghosts. Batgirl manages to get him in her lasso, but then he mysteriously disappears, leaving the flaming message, warning, do not interfere with my plans. And then there's like a little dash dash and he signs it, Arnold. Yeah, so solid, but he has the ability to leave a cloud of fiery letters. Yeah. Dude's okay. got powers. Dude's got powers. Maybe this is why the boomers call us snowflakes. Because <laughs> if Benedict Arnold appeared magically, set things on fire, and then disappeared, the country would be shut down. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, that, that, would, that would definitely happen. But no, not for these boomers. No. Business as yeah. usual. And like the cameraman, the most upset is that is that he gets his, Benedict Arnold ruined a day's worth of work. He yeah, melted he said, all his film. Uh, yeah, that's right. It's not in the cloud. That film tape was everything. It was, it was. But hey, they got to move on. Barbara Gordon, she has a class filled of uh, middle, middle schoolers, schoolers. from Metropolis. Yeah, yeah, that she has to talk to. She doesn't have time to worry about Benedict Arnold, the invader from hell. And what I love about these kids is that they're only interested in her uh, nightlife. That's right. Apparently she has a, a history with one Clark Kent. And this is something that I did not know about. Uh, and and and. I was just going to blow past it, but Lisa's like, Brad, what happened between Barbara Gordon and Clark Kent? You know I'm only into comics for the dating history. I know, I know. So who's zooming who? I did a quick little Google search, and I did discover that, yes, indeed, Clark and Barbara were set up on a blind date by Batman in Superman issue number 268, published in October of 1973. And this issue, Lisa is wild. I'm going to have to get you to read this at, oh, really? at some point. But Batman tells Superman that Barbara is lonely as a congresswoman in Washington, D.C., but Batman really wants Superman to take a break from being super all the time. He needs to relax. Sadly, Clark Kent is a total bore on their date, <laughs> and Barbara just really wants nothing to do with him by the end of the evening, which goes into midnight. But it's total snoozevilles. She's trying to escape him the entire time and get with another senator. I feel sorry for her that she would stay till midnight with a bad date. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, get and out of there, girl. What happens the next day is that they do have to partner up, but this time as Batgirl and Superman to kick some butt uh, and and like dismantle this spying that is going around DC. And does she then know that he's no, no, oh, no, 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 no. None of that. None of that happens. It, you really need to read these panels, though, because, whoa, we could do a whole episode on issue uh, 268 of Superman. Uh, and we very well may. We might. We might. Who knows? But Barbara Gordon isn't going to spill any tea, and she's interrupted anyway by Dick Grayson, who pops yeah. in, is like, hey, you got a phone call. And then we have a panel of her closing her eyes and thinking of Dick. And uh, this is what she says in her thought bubbles to herself. A shame Dick has to return to Hudson University after his vacation. 
He surprises me by being such a good worker. <laughs> I've never closed my eyes and thought about somebody's work ethic. That's, a, that's an eyes open thought. Um, she continues, I hope he'll be more than a worthless playboy like, his, like that guardian of his, Bruce Wayne. Doesn't she know that Bruce Wayne is Batman? Yeah, I'm. again, it's all very confusing pre-crisis. Because the, he clearly knows that she is Batgirl because he set her up right. with Clark Kent. And there is an earlier issue, I think it's Detective Comics 363, where Batman reveals his identity to Barbara Gordon at, you know, as Bruce Wayne. But, but does that mean that... She knows that Bruce Wayne is Batman. No, because and what's yet weird about that know? issue yeah. is that it's like a he makes it look like the disguise he's wearing, the Bruce Wayne face, is like this wax mask. So she comes away from that going like, I don't think that actually was Bruce Wayne. Okay. So she still she I mean, clearly in this panel, she doesn't know that Bruce Wayne is Batman. And she doesn't know that Dick Grayson is Robin. But then in the next issue, when she puts two and two together with Dick Grayson and Robin. When does she put two and two together with Bruce Wayne and, 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 and Batman? Because, again, when you go further down into Batman family, Alfred shows up during the whole outsider arc that we're about to talk about. And she knows that that is Bruce Wayne's butler. Yeah, so I don't know. I don't, it's all very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that uh, uh, Batman is that great a detective at all. He just gets everybody around him confused. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But, uh, yeah, so she goes to the floor of Congress and uh, there, Benedict Arnold is addressing uh, the house. Yes. And what I love about this, Lisa, is that he is only here to complain. He's <laughs> mad that his good name has been besmirched by the Congress. Because, that yeah, it's Congress's fault that we all hate Benedict <laughs> Arnold. And he's like, after 200 years, it's time for, for you people to understand, like, what a righteous dude I am. His feelings are hurt. Yeah. So now he has mesmerized a bunch of troops yeah. and got them in cosplay so they can make a run on the Pentagon. <laughs> yeah. And, of course... Uh, Dick is there and Barbara's there and they, they have to suit up once again. They both awkwardly excuse themselves. And I like this this panel of Robin slinging himself uh, across the Washington National Monument. 555 feet up. That is that top. is true. Um, but in the middle of just like the shortest buildings possible. Well, here's the deal. Uh, clearly, um, Elliot S. Magan and Mike Grell have never gone to Washington, D.C. I know we're not a local geography podcast, but it is wild. But like th that's that's how it always is in comics and movies. You know, you're watching Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen. They're in the uh, Udvar-Hazy Air and Space Museum. They they kick uh, um, oh gosh, what's that? Uh, it's not Starscream, but they kick one of the Transformers out the wall of the Udvar-Hazy and suddenly there's like a desert backyard. Yeah, of course. Like th th you just got to let it go. You got to let it go. <laughs> Clearly we have trouble doing that. Batgirl and Robin Roll in on these red coats, and they're vastly outnumbered. It does. It's a little embarrassing. It doesn't go great. And then they're rowed into the city of Washington D.C. on a rail, and then slung up on this kind of uh, just, I guess, a contraption. That's all I can call it. At what that has levers. Yeah, it looks like a like a telegraph pole. And <laughs> phone so, lines. so from his steed, Benedict Arnold announces his scheme, and the thing it just comes down to one of them has to either sacrifice themselves 
So the other can survive, and if neither sacrifices themselves, they don't die. Um, but before he can even finish his little morality play, they both release themselves at the same time and land gracefully on their feet because they're circus people. Well, they're circus people. They're Batman and or they're Batgirl and Robin. Clearly, Benedict Arnold has not dealt with the dynamite duo before or anyone like them. But he certainly has his sights set on them. He does. He does. Well, there's a reason for that, Lisa. There's a very particular reason. Uh, so we see uh, Benedict Arnold hanging out with this dude with big glasses in a red leisure suit. Who could this gentleman be? Yeah. Um, if you've seen Oh God, You Devil, he looks a lot like George Burns from Down Under. And he seems to be calling the shots because he's like, Benedict... This, I mean, this isn't going to play out at all. I, I, this isn't working out. And Benedict Arnold's like, no, you have to give me another chance. He's like, I guess so. Well, what'll you need for the second chance? And he's like, two swords. What I need is two swords. And the guy with the glasses and the red leisure suit, he snaps his fingers and, and two swords appear. And Robin and Benedict Arnold have a duel in the streets of D.C. Right in front of the Lincoln Memorial. <laughs> right in front of the Lincoln Memorial. Yeah, yeah, they're on Constitution Avenue. And he seems to have the upper hand because they each only have one sword. And he backs them up onto these steps. And are those, but they're not the steps of no. the Lincoln Memorial. No, no, no. It's a huge reveal. We don't want to spoil right, it. Right, 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 right. Um, but, uh, but then he starts zapping them like his swords are now laser swords. Yep, yep, yep. And he's like, I got them now. But then they they cross the streams. Yep, Ghostbuster style. And uh, and then they end up zapping him back. Here's the best thing. This is the moment where Batman and Family Number One became like my favorite Batgirl and Robin story. <laughs> Uh, because clearly the man in the red suit is Satan. That's we know, right. We know that the title of the comic is called The Invader from Hell. Benedict Arnold is marching to the devil's drum. But what's awesome is Mike Grell doesn't just give us the leisure suit devil. He gives us the cloven hoof devil, the horns, the red skin, the yellow Mephisto eyes. Now we're Don't rocking. turn the page because oh, okay, I had okay. the most, like, so when I read this through the first time, so clearly, I was like, clearly this guy is the devil, but then the, so he transforms himself and then the talk bubble says, the American spirit is as strong as ever. Oh. And so I read this as, oh, that's not the devil. That's this demon called the American spirit. And I was like, the American spirit is a red devil? That makes sense. That made sense to me. I was like, whoa, this is really, really woke. And then you turn the page but and no, he's, he's got just the, regular the devil. tail. He's got devil wings. I mean, it's amazing. I love this drawing right here. It's beautiful. But uh, those steps he got back up. Oh. There were steps to the, to the National Cathedral, which yeah. is, of course, right across the way from the Lincoln Memorial. Yeah. And so uh, inside a sacred place, untouchable by the devil. And so he just ends up taking Benedict Arnold back to hell. Yes, yes. And, and oh, all's fair in, in love and battling Satan, Lisa. But... Uh, Batman Family Number One. The reason we're reading Batman Family Number One is this second to last page after the devil has gone back to Georgia uh, and Benedict Arnold ha have have fled because Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon, as their costume crime fighting uh, alter egos, they get a moment alone. They do, and uh, Robin decides to seize that moment and go like, see, 
Batgirl, crime fighting gets you mixed up into all crazy stuff. <laughs> Don't you see now that it is truly not women's work and oh. you should just go uh, turn that cowl right into an apron and, and get back <sighs> in the kitchen. Yeah, dick. And so the way she's like, mm, how am I going to shut this, this boy up. misogynist, <laughs> condescending A-hole. youth up? Yeah. Uh, she goes, oh, I'm going to I'm going to bend him right into a deep smooch. This is the first time that Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon have kissed. You got because you got to remember they had a peck on the cheek in Batgirl year one. But that's all retconned. As far as proper pre-crisis continuity, this is the first smooch between Dick and Babs. When he is technically her intern and he was just slandering her and condescending to her. But what I love is she gets the upper hand on him. And he's like falling back on her arms, you know. And she, he's he's in the dip, uh, and he does. What, he slings away with the derpiest look on his face. Well, I mean, he's a little shocked, Lisa. He's a little shocked. And she's standing there with her hands on her hips. See you around, kid. I it, think that worked. So here's the thing: we talked about this a little bit in our Batgirl Year One episode, but looking specifically at Batman Family Number One, what do you think the age difference is between these two? So he is at the stage of his university where he's out doing internships. So he's like, what, 18? Well, 18. 19? I would say, like, if you're doing He's the teen wonder. Yeah, so he's got to be something teen, I guess. Like, I I feel like 18 feels too old for me. I feel like he got into college on, like, you know, uh, as a 17-year-old. Really? I, I don't, he just seems I, so He young. had to be at least a grade behind because he spent all that time in the circus. <laughs> circus time, you get held back. No, no, no. They're teaching you under those tents. He's, <laughs> he's being homeschooled. No, no, no. So you're think, saying he's like 17 I think, years I think old. he's 17 and she's a congresswoman. That's not appropriate. All right. First off, how old do you have to be to be a congresswoman? I don't know. To be president, you have to be 35. That's all I know. Hold up. Let me look this up. To the bat, Google. Okay. 25 years old. So she's 25 and he's 17. Uh, Even if he's 18, that's still probably a little... I mean, we're five years difference. That's uh, seven years. We're five years difference in our... Like, we started dating in our 20s. It would be weird if you were 23 or you were 22 and you were dating me when I was 17. I mean, yeah, it's not legal. And you were my boss. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, no, no, no. That's... That's that's no good. That's no good. And it's a false kiss. She's just doing it to shut him up. Yes, that's true. But as this series develops, so does their romantic possibilities. That's yeah, all. of course. So it's, I'm just saying it's a little it's a little odd. Mm, I'm not gonna. Fo- I'm choosing not to focus on. Okay, it. let's not focus on it. So, Last page, Lisa. Your favorite page of any Batman family. It's the epilogue. It's not even an epilogue. It's a flash forward. Oh, right, right. Because we started with Barbara Gordon. That's right. So now we're in the bus. I can't remember how Inception works. Um, (laughs) But she's addressing Congress and she gives, she delivers what's supposed to be the moral of the story. But honestly, I read this page like five times. I find it incomprehensible. Well, it's only a few panels. So I say, let's just go ahead and read this thing. Okay, you give it a go. So this is Barbara Gordon uh, talking to Congress after they've just fought uh, Benedict Arnold and Satan. Not, But they don't know that. But Congress doesn't know that? That that she fought them because they don't know if she's back. Oh, right, man. See, secret identities are the worst. This is why Iron Man came out in the first movie. Uh, But here's Barbara Gordon. Okay, she says, call him the devil if you like, 
or call him the specter of all the pride and greed with which we've paid for the American spirit for two centuries. Which, with which we've paid for the, like, what does that mean? With which we've paid for we've the American... We've paid for the pride and the greed? We've paid for the American spirit by... Okay, all right, we're going to move, move on. on. Whatever we call this immortal evil... Satan, right? We will never fully understand it. I agree. Any more than we will understand the true nature of courage, justice, or truth itself. I hope that's not true. I hope we understand courage, justice, and truth. <laughs> or just have a vague idea. Uh, but we must always understand the American ideal of and what? guard that dream bravely so that such forces may remain strong. That is the debt we owe the past and our responsibility to the children of the future. Uh, bravo, Barbara Gordon, everyone says. <laughs> it's all gobbledygook. Uh, yes, I agree. It's gobbledygook. But, you know, these are the kinds of adventures that uh, Batman and Batgirl and Robin would be having in the, in the 60s and during the Silver Age. Uh, and I feel like in, in the Bronze Age, they're trying to apply some kind of morality to it. It's being a little bit more of a, um, a lesson, a fable. It's a wild swing it's at wild substance. Swing. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. <laughs> Let's get on to our next issue. Number 11. This one, oh my goodness. Till Death Do Us Part. Maybe my favorite cover of the entire run of Batman Family. I love... Uh, this would make an amazing cosplay, by the way. Agreed, agreed. It is Robin and Batgirl um, on an altar getting married, and uh, Batgirl is in a all-white Batgirl gown. Not a gown, a jumpsuit. A jumpsuit. It's amazing, and, and it's got lace on the sides, <laughs> and then her cowl opens up into this Veil. Yeah, it's really, really cool. It's so cool. And then Robin's wearing a Robin tuxedo. It looks like a traditional tuxedo, but it's in the red, green, and yellow uh, color scheme. It looks like he borrowed the leisure suit from Satan. Yeah, and then slapped an R on it and was wearing his yellow cape uh, over it. And, but the frustrating thing is, besides the cover and the splash page that opens the story, this uh, outfit situation never never happens, never happens. It was such a bummer because when the matrimony sequence actually occurs in chapter three they're wearing their regular uniforms and here's the other thing about this issue it's broken up into three chapters chapter one is robin um you know, uh, he's at Hudson University and he's uh, what doing the first toss. I, we don't I know don't, basketball. I don't terms. know basketball. He's yeah, he's doing the first toss. I guess it's like a first pitch. I'm not sure. And a sniper fires upon Robin and Robin looks like he is hit in the bottom four panels. The basketball is right in front of his body, which is very important. But it turns out that the bullet hit the basketball and that is a so bulletproof basketball. Did the did he, the assassin just lightly toss the bullet? I, 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 don't, I don't know. It's it's interesting. So then Robin has a fight with the assassin. It turns out that this assassin has been sent by this criminal organization named Maze. Chapter two, again, remember, this is in the late 70s. Oh, and you should mention the bald, gray-haired oh. gray guy. He's the guy who set up the hit. Yeah, we, we there's a page at the very end of chapter one where a bald man enters a gas station and there's a secret communication device through the mirror. It's a camera phone. Where the, yeah, that's right. He's on FaceTime. Phone. He's on an iPad. Uh, he's communicating with the head of Maze and he's really mad, this bald man. Chapter because he ordered the hit on Robin. Yeah. Chapter two, 
Barbara Gordon, she's in a parking garage. Not just any parking garage. It's the Deep Throat parking garage <laughs> of Washington, D.C. She's like, all kinds of stuff goes down here. <laughs> yeah, and, and she's right because she comes across two May's assassins doing a drop and she interferes and they have like a kerfuffle. Turns they, out it was a setup. It was a setup. They get arrested. At the end of her chapter, we see the angry bald man screaming at the mirror once more. He also ordered the hit on Batgirl. But the wild thing is, is that chapter three starts at this altar where there's this whole organization of maze agents waiting to see Batgirl and Robin get married. Yeah. Via a trance. Uh the head of Maze assured the bald man that uh, they never give up on a contract. And apparently these are the lengths that he'll go to. He'll rent out the Ford Theater. Yeah, for, that's right. Where it's the Ford President Theater. President Lincoln was assassinated. Yeah, yeah. And we're now going to uh, mind control Robin and Batgirl mm -hmm. into marrying each other, which they do. But the moment they say, I will, instead of I do for some reason. We didn't say I do at our wedding. And these gangsters all pull their guns out to obliterate them. But turns out Batgirl and Robin knew what was going down and uh, they're not actually in a trance. And so there was a trapdoor also in the fourth theater. Right. And, and, and they have a fight with all these gangsters. The cops come in and very strangely... Barbara Gordon's like, well, you know what? These guys are probably going to get off anyway. There's not enough evidence. Eh, next time. Yeah, let's just go get some food. Let's go get some food together. Lisa, I had to read this, like, th this third chapter three or four times to really understand. And then you know, then there's the epilogue because page. It, because there's nothing to understand. Because it makes zero sense without this epilogue. Well, the epilogue is Barbara Gordon speaking to the reader, breaking the fourth wall. Which makes me uncomfortable. That's my wall. And she explains how the third chapter even happened. Turns out that bald guy yeah. who hired the assassins was actually Robin in disguise. That's right. And then we see the bald man wearing Robin's costume wander into this kitchen where Barbara Gordon is talking to the reader and is like, you know what? I might keep this costume on for a little while. I like this old man's face. And and she's like, I like that old man's face too. Let's, let's do some dirty old man stuff. Well, she says, you know, Robin, you're quite attractive as an older man. And he goes, really? Maybe I'll keep this disguise on for a while. And it looks like they're coming in for a kiss. And that's the end. That's the final panel. It's very kinky. It's such a strange issue. It's so hard to read, to to like put all the pieces together. And then when you're finally given that epilogue, which supposedly explains everything, it somehow makes even less sense. I did, like I had to have you explain to me. I'm like, why is this old man in Robin's suit? I didn't get it at all. So you, you got further than I did on this one. I don't know. It's all worth it for that cover and splash page. We're going to, I mean, we're going to do that cosplay because you look great in a suit. I look amazing in a 70s style He's jumpsuit. He's got the pixie boots and everything on. Uh, is there anything else beyond this little dirty business in the epilogue that we need to talk about or address regarding their relationship? Uh, I think there there is a super insightful moment about Robin. If you turn to page number 449. Yeah. Omnibus. Uh, this is right after he has dunked the maze agent and the police arrive to make the arrest. And it is security chief Frank McDonald and police lieutenant Rick Tatum. And Rick Tatum 
has a brief but insightful heart-to-heart with Robin about how he uses humor to dispel his, this just the stress of being a vigilante. So, I mean, it's not like he started the joking because security chief Frank McDonald is like, hey, Robin, a little early to put on a halftime show. And Robin is like, yeah, but it's it's I started the game with a bang. And then Rick Tatum gets super concerned. He's like, that clown nearly blows you to kingdom come and you joke about it? What are you made of? And then Robin replies, the same kind of stuffing as you, Lieutenant. But if I don't crack a joke and break the tension, I might never put this costume on again. Ooh, dark. Call it a home remedy for its own mental well-being. So he is the cr- the clown that cries, Brad. Again, this is a Bronze Age thing. This is a Bronze Age thing. You yeah. know, they have to address this stuff. He can't just make a silly joke. It right. is it is sick. If somebody attempts to assassinate you and you're like, ha, 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 another Tuesday. <laughs> but it is another Tuesday for Robin Lisa. I think that Rick Tatum, and, and Rick Tatum brings it up again. He's really concerned about Robin. Rick Tatum shows up in Batman Family on multiple occasions. I'm not, I'm not surprised because he has gotten uh, way deeper with Robin in two panels than Barbara Gordon has in this in- entire series thus far. Well, don't worry, Lisa, because when we jump now over to issue 13, we're going to get some serious discussion between Barbara and Dick as far as their feelings for each other are concerned. That we do. This issue is a massive one. You know, like like, like we said, it's a anthology series, right? And in that first issue, you have... Uh, Batgirl and Robin stories, you have Alfred stories, you have Man Bat stories. And this issue is where several of those plots all come together for the first time. You have Robin and Batgirl and Man Bat and Alfred, and there's there's an epic happening here. Together for the first time in an all-new action adventure. And just in case you've only been reading the the Man Bat stories, they do fill you in on who Robin is and Batgirl is on the opening splash page. And the title is The Man Who Melted Manhattan. And as you see on the cover of that splash page, that's a literal title. The buildings of Manhattan are being turned into large candles. The Outsider is a truly terrifying villain. He seems to have bottomless superpowers. Yeah, he has like total control over reality. He's Thanos with the Infinity Gauntlet. Yeah, scary. Chapter one of four chapters is a story where Batgirl and Robin are shackled to their bat cycles, which are zipping out of control through Times Square. And it was only through cooperation and a little bit of acid from the utility belt that they were both able to get free. And um, they, as they leap from their crazy bat cycles, the two cycles cra- crash in this huge kaboom. And... Uh, Robin and Batgirl are just sitting on the street corner and he's like, so what's new? Getting any excitement in your life? (laughs) And Batgirl is like, don't you ever get serious? And then he leans in and he says, I could get serious with you. And she was like, oh, knock off that macho routine, Robin. Just remember, this is a business relationship. Mm. That business 
is in italics. And do you know what italics mean? No, you mean business. And um, he's like, oh, uh, sure, I, I know that. Just making a joke, you know, haha, <laughs> being Robin. So he's trying to make his move, but he's scared. I think because she is technically his elder and has been in kind of an authoritarian role. It is also interesting with Batgirl saying, like, get serious, similar to our detective friend in the last issue, right? Yeah, everybody is see like everybody is seeing his jokes and going like this is a cry for help. Well, I mean look at that costume. <laughs> you know, clearly he's a jokester. But in all seriousness, that's kind of it baked into the DNA of Robin as a character is that he is, he's the opposite of Batman. He is not the Dark Knight. He comes from the circus. He is a bright Avenger. He is he he is here to have fun while fighting crime. But as a result, as we're entering into this Bronze Age, they have to keep commenting on that. Right, like Pagliacci also has problems. Yeah, oh man, Pagliacci. <laughs> Let's see, start Pagliacci. Uh, I have to make the reference. I am an opera major. <laughs> then Barbara Gordon is like, "There's, there's no time for laughs because you know what's weird? Everywhere I looked, I saw Alfred." Bruce Wayne's butler. So apparently she doesn't know that I, Bruce Wayne is Batman at this that. point. I guess that. It's so confusing. That's interesting. And and Dick Grayson is not going to let on. No. He's like, ah, yeah, I saw, yeah, that's weird. That's I saw weird. Alfred that's everywhere weird. too. But I think I know what's going on. And so let's go get a bite to eat and I'll tell you. And I love this itty bitty little panel where... Uh, Batgirl has her arm around Robin and they're calling each other partner because they're just friends. And then it says, to find out what Robin has to say, check out Batman's Bureau of Missing Villains elsewhere in this issue. Meantime, let's jump ahead 12 hours and three pages to chapter two. Yeah, so before we get into the Man Bat stuff, I think we need to talk about Alfred and what that little reference in that panel is. The Outsider is a hell of a character just to drop on an audience member who has maybe never read a Batman comic outside of this very single issue. And it requires some preconceived knowledge that is essential to understanding the rest of this issue. Okay, please fill me in. So way back in Detective Comics number 328, published in June of 1964, Alfred was apparently killed when he pushed Batman and Robin out of the way of a tumbling boulder. However, two years later, that means there was two years where there was no Alfred in the comics, in Detective Comics number 356, it is revealed that the terrifying villain, the Outsider, is in actuality Alfred Pennyworth. Kinda. Sorta. When Alfred was rescued from the brink of death by the mad scientist Dr. Brandon Crawford, Lisa, he awoke with pasty white skin covered in these gnarly circular markings. He had the superhuman strength, telekinetic capabilities, and an intense thirst to kill his former friends, Batman and Robin. Batman finally captures the Outsider and traps him in this machine that bombards Alfred's body with radioactive waves. Rather than killing him, it tears the Outsider's personality out of Alfred's body. Unfortunately, as we see in this issue, sometimes Alfred would still relapse into the Outsider persona. Okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. That's that's what's going on with Alfred over the course of the Bronze Age. So there's just a little, a little spot of evil hanging out in his brain. Yeah. Just yeah. waiting to... Okay. Chapter 2. 
Twilight of the Sunset gang, we get to hang out with Man Bat and his wife, Francine. Uh, when are we going to do an episode about them? I mean, she does become a Man Bat herself. What? Or a Woman Bat. Oh, that's cool. Um, so he apparently has been having these tro- issues with sometimes he becomes a were-jaguar. Yeah, and that happens. Those are the, That's what's been going on in Batman family when we're not following Batgirl and Robin. So, yeah. so Were-jaguar. That's, that's been inconvenient and awkward. And then he um, busts uh, uh, an art heist by the Sunset Gang, and we get introduced to the outsider whom we've already covered. But do you know who we have not covered? Manbat. What's his deal? Well, because of the animated series, I tend to think of Kirk Langstrom, a.k.a. Manbat, as a more of a tragic villain. Uh, and he's definitely that most of the time. But I guess there's this period in the 70s where he was more hero than villain. His basic deal, Lisa, was that he was a zoologist who specialized in Cairo terology. I can't pronounce that. How do you pronounce that, Lisa? Which is the study of bats, Lisa. He created an extract that was meant to give humans the same sonar capabilities of bats. A batty tingle? Yeah, batty, a batty tingle. But when he tried it on himself, he became the man bat. This also caused him to go insane and commit all kinds of uh, acts of rampage. And uh, yeah, so man bat moves to New York City on the request uh, slash suggestion of Batman. And that's where he runs into the Sunset Gang and, and becomes their foil. I don't know what scientists have learned from comic books to never test their experiments on themselves (laughs) or to always test their experiments on themselves. All you really need to know about this chapter is that uh, the outsider pulls the moon from the sky, hits Man Bat with it, he busts into two parts, part Man Bat, part, well, where Jaguar. Clear as mud. Chapter three. Explosive end of the dynamite duo. This chapter is why we're reading this comic, and this moment is why we're covering Batman Family as part of our Dick and Bab series. It's really fabulous. It takes place at the Teen Titans Lair, which just happens to be underneath a super popular discotheque, just in case you didn't know that the Teen Titans were young and hip and cool. It's called Gideon's Horn. Gabriel's Horn. Gabriel's Horn. That doesn't sound dirty at all. (laughs) And Batgirl is getting to see Robin really in his element. He's sitting at the controls. He is tapping into the Justice League satellite. And I'm getting, like, I'm getting vibes from her. I feel like she's starting to, like, this interests her. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, but Robin is completely engaged with, you know, trying to get a hold of Alfred. And she's like, Seems like you're in control of stuff. I think I'm going to, you know, just have a nap, a little nap. They've been going at it, um, trying to find Alfred. That's what I mean. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, she goes uh, yeah, like, as she's drifting off, she says, you know, this place is really something. You Titans sure have gotten your act together. Ooh. Like, you know, to, together enough to maybe go out on an adult date Ooh. We'll see. And so turn of the page, we see uh, Dick Grayson taking hold of the moment. And he's like, you know, our acts are not together, but that's not your problem. Since we've got some time, can we talk about us? We get a panel of a very serious face, Dick Grayson. <laughs> and I love this little speech. Will you just indulge me? I'm just going to read it. 
Babs, I guess I do come on strong sometimes, and I, I really don't have any right to. At Hudson U, Robin's a big celebrity. I can get any girl I want. Good lead. Lead with that forward. Well, and we have seen uh, Dick Grayson's girlfriends at Hudson University. I mean, he's doing quite well. He's just establishing, he's establishing I'm a hot commodity. So any girl would any girl would want this. But those girls are not Barbara Gordon. And he goes on to say that. He says, but you're the girl I can never get. Yeah, I'm a hot shot superhero and I can get my name in the papers and people all know me. I mean, you know, he's a confident man. He's Again, doing the hard that conf- sell. That confidence, he's, he, he wears it in his costume. He's confident. I, I don't know. Uh, but you have all the same things. You aren't awed by my fame. It's kind of like having a crush on your fifth grade teacher. That's weird. That's a weird thing to say. Everything she says or does, you interpret as a sign that she's madly in love with you. Yeah. But that's not the case at all. It's always a one-sided thing. Yeah, I wouldn't have gone there, Robin. I would not have gone there. But then he goes here. But I'm a big boy. Oh, boy. I don't oh know. Boy. Yes, he is. <laughs> yes, he is a big Can boy. you imagine, no. like, Saying- hey... Brad Gullickson, I really teacher. admire you. <laughs> You're like a fifth grade teacher for me, and I'm a big, big boy. <laughs> <laughs> I think he starts off fairly strong. Does he? It, I, well, like, he's, he starts off stronger than where he goes, okay? <laughs> he starts off stronger than where he goes. The, I'm going to, if you die in a fire, this is the strategy I'm taking. Okay. I am... Lisa Gullickson, formerly of the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. I am very famous. Yeah, you're a big girl. <laughs> I'm a big, big girl. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, uh, though, what's Okay, happening? hold on. We, we haven't gotten to the good part. Oh, okay. <laughs> though, I, how good do you get? It's good? unbearable. Where do you go from I'm a big boy? I'm a big boy now, and I have, so, I have something you might want to hear. I love you, Babs, as a friend, as a partner, even as a big sister. Yeah, no, again, he just, no. Uh, He's not done. Oh, God. And I'd like to believe I could love you as a Babs, Batgirl, and then Thought Bubble, finally, a Thought Bubble. (laughs) Uh, Like, there should have been more Thought Bubbles here. (laughs) There should all be Thought Bubbles. Oh, shoot, she's asleep. Oh, thank God. I mean... Look, it, he he should be thanking God. It's a very good thing that Barbara Gordon didn't hear what he said. He's working it out in his head. This, this monologue. Is, this it, is a draft. This is a draft. This, this is, is a, draft. a draft. It's not only a draft for Robin, it's a draft for the reader. Like this is DC Comics easing us into the possibility of a romantic relationship between these two characters. Yeah. And so like, yeah, she's like a big sister to him that she he wants to date. Thank God this embarrassment is... The tension is broken. Is broken. By the outsider. By the outsider who crawls out of the Teen Titans television. Very scary. Mad skills. And he sicks the Were Jaguar upon the dynamite duo. Yes. And he leaves that Were Jaguar there to do the dirty work and he just leaves. Yeah. He has to go transform the Manhattan skyline into a series of candles. But the joke's on him. He can't even enjoy that moment because... Robin and Batgirl are now back with Man Bat, who actually 
never died at the hands of the were jaguar. He was just wearing the were jaguar as like a skin. He was yeah. hiding. Yeah. <laughs> it's gross. He 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 weirdly so we see in a flashback that he managed to defeat the were jaguar, which was weird for him cuz apparently the were jaguar was a, a part of him? himself. Yeah. And then he wore the the flesh of the were jaguar to trick everyone. <laughs> I understand why he's so surly. Yeah, he's, yeah, yeah, he's mad bad. <laughs> So um, fisticuff, fisticuff, fisticuff. Um, Robin manages to hit the uh, outsider with that flashlight with a moonbeam. We didn't cover it, but Alfred pops out. Um, he gives a the outsider a, a very square rap to the nose. Apparently, he knows something about the manly art of fisticuffs, and. Outsider um, gets knocked back and then falls off of the bridge. To his death. And uh, Alfred faints from the shock of killing a man. But Robin goes like, don't worry about it, Alfred, because that's really not a man. So it's no big deal. That's a little messed up, Robin. He's clearly, he knows a lot of people. Man bat is not. Well, man bed is a man some of the time. I guess for Robin to respect your life, you have to be man at least part of the time. I think the concept is wildly out there and he cannot wrap his brain around it. So you go like, well, that outsider, it doesn't make sense to me. So it's it, it doesn't even exist on the same level of being that I do and that Alfred does. That's pretty sick. I think it's, yeah, I, th- I think it's something he just has to do. But it turns out, like, to get through the day, yeah, like, he just has to tell himself... <laughs> Well, it becomes a moot point because Alfred is mid-faint when he's being right. told that. And um, when Alfred comes to, uh, he's like, "What? what's going on? Where am I? And in that moment, Robin and Bad Girl are like, let's not even tell him. Yeah. Let's not even tell him that he killed a supernatural being. They gaslight him. Totally. Uh, there is an epilogue to this story. It um, ends with uh, Batwoman melting. I don't even know the first thing about this version of Batwoman. We don't. We are at nearly an hour and a half of this episode. Doctor Dino, what did you do to us? We we can't we can't talk about Batwoman right now because we still have another issue. Now, thankfully, this issue I don't have a lot to talk about with Batman Family number fifteen. Killer Moth, who was one of the main villains from Batgirl Year One, and I wanted to hang out with him in his era of origin. And he's picked for his partner, uh, the Cavalier, who is way more chill. Than Firefly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we actually get a couple of characters from Batgirl Year right? One. Because yeah. we also get Jason Bard, yep. who is kind of a love interest type in Batgirl Year One, Private Eye, super hot. And we also get Commissioner Gordon, who totally knows that his daughter is Batgirl and loves it. Yep. Yep. For most of issue 15, however, Batgirl and Robin spend no time together because Cavalier is going after Robin while Killer Moth is going after Batgirl. And those are two separate chapters. Yeah, they have a wager of who can find Batman's cave first. And the reason they want to get that cave is so that they can get his gadgets to take on the underworld? No, they want to sell Batman's arsenal to the underworld. Yeah, okay. And uh, Killer Moth is like, well, Batgirl's a woman and you can always get information out of a woman. And uh, Cavalier is like, yeah, but who would tell their secret information to a woman? Oh, God. Oh, God. (laughs) So Killer Moth starts just robbing banks, hoping that Batgirl will show up. And inevitably, she does. But she 
she uses her womanly intuition to figure out his scheme, and she lures him to her buddy Jason Bard, private detective's house, who didn't get his limp from rescuing her dad, but instead from the Vietnam War. Anywho, um, so they end up fighting in a cave that's not the Batcave. I love how Killer Moth is like, well, clearly Batman's lair is going to be a cave because it's a bat, so. (laughs) Batgirl has the upper hand and they are fighting and she's like, even if you killed me, I never would have told you where the Batcave is. And I'm like, girl, don't use the word cave. You're giving it away. So he, she's slinging his little stockinged body all around. And she says, contrary to what your sword slinging buddy may believe, women are not the weaker sex in mind or body, especially when we're dealing with jerks like you. Boom. I love that. She is, it's funny because I mean, it's no secret. It's dudes writing these comics. They are really trying to create a feminist character. A feminist character who does kiss men to shut them up. But other than that, she's pretty powerful. Anyway, Dad shows up. He's on the outside of the cave to make the arrest. And uh, he makes a very awkward joke. Uh, where So they're about to get into his car. And he's like, guess that just leaves the two of us, Batgirl, Think people will talk if they see an yeah, attractive gross. young right. heroine yeah. out with a crusty old police commissioner? Dad, dad, no, no, no. Dad's not going to make that joke, uh, but these writers might. Ugh. The only thing I want to say about Robin's confrontation with the Cavalier is he fools him by luring him into this tree fort or like this fortress that's inside the trunk of a tree. And Cavalier gets the impression because Robin has created this giant bird's nest inside this tree fort that he must be an alien. And he finds like this little gadget and the gadget has like alien writing on it. He goes, aha, Batman and Robin are aliens. They're not of this earth. They're from this planet Nibor. I love that in this alien layer, they have all of the signage is in alien and English. Yep, it's like very convenient. <laughs> I know. Very so kind just in case them. he has visitors. And Robin, of course, confronts the Cavalier. They fight. Robin, you know, bests him and both uh, the Cavalier and Killer Moth end up in jail together. But Killer Moth believes he knows where the Batcave is and Cavalier believes that he knows where the tree fort is. And I love that Killer Moth is like, no, man, you're you're stupid because Nibor is spelled backwards as Robin. They're having a lark with you. And yes, we know that they're having a lark. And the reason that Robin was able to set all that up was because he got some gadgets from Superman. He did, but what I think is cute in that little exchange, we see Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon on the phone together. And she's like, how did you pull that trick off? And he's like, I won't tell. I'm like, why so coy? Just tell him, like, you know, our friend, you know, Kal-El helped me. <laughs> Well, because Kal-El once dated her. He, oh, he doesn't yeah. want Ooh, you think her it's to jealous? know. Yeah, I think it's jealousy, yes. I think even with his feelings for Barbara Gordon, he likes to keep her at arm's length. If I it's were a power to, play. Yeah, I think so. And I think that his anxiety stance is distance. Like he's always making these jokes. He's always like going like, well, the outsider is not a human being, you know, like he's always distancing himself from the situation where Barbara is much more conflict. Like if we have a disagreement, I'm going to pull the truth out of you. I'm going to best you in mind and body because I am a powerful woman. Yeah. And we saw that explored 
to like or deconstructed in Batgirl Year One. Like that was the whole point of Batgirl Year One was understanding that side of Barbara Gordon. Absolutely. So obviously, Lisa and I had a lot of fun with Batman Family. This era of comics is so my jam. Like, I love the look of it. I love the wackiness of it. Yeah, it's easy to mock it, but it's also like just fun to let it envelop you like when you read a bunch of Batman family issues back to back you fall into the rhythm of this era it's one thing to go from like you know a a modern comic to a 70s comic but if you're living in the 70s comic I mean it feels good it feels fun it feels happy I really appreciate how terrible they are at depicting a strong female character because th- they're um, insightful enough to go like, we need a strong woman comic. The uh, the message f- of feminism is important and we want it represented. So dude, how do you want to cover it? Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, like clearly the culture is changing and they need, they, they need to address the culture. It's a lot like what you see with Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams in Green Lantern, Green Arrow. You know, they're doing their best job to, um, to give voice, to put a platform to these, these significant historical stories. They're just not quite there yet. Uh, They're just not willing to give their seat up to an actual woman writer. That's Yeah, I think that's really what it comes down to. That's what it comes down to. Uh, But I am going to continue reading the rest of these Batman family issues. I've had a good time with them. Delightful. In these four issues, however, we did not get to see Dick and Babs become an item. Right. When does that actually happen in the comics? Well, not for decades because oh, really? really at this point it's all flirtations and it's all about the will they won't they relationship. Not until they're uh, proper adults, not until Robin is no longer the teen wonder, but is Nightwing the man wonder uh, and Oracle when Barbara Gordon is in the Oracle position. And that's like in the nineties when they become an actual romance. I think that, the age gap, like once he's Nightwing and she's Oracle, the age gap kind of virtually it doesn't matter. closes. Yeah, it doesn't matter so much. And so- Because in in like superhero years, they're the exact same age because they're kind of new, I guess. Yeah, but it is an interesting question to ask, looking exclusively at these Bronze Age comics, would you want these two to become a couple? Is there a possibility that these two would become a couple? I think it would be super questionable for Congresswoman Barbara (laughs) Gordon to start having a serious relationship with a college student. That's that's just the way it is. That would make the news. But also, like, Dick Grayson has a lot of maturing to do. I mean, I think it's wonderful that he admires Barbara for her strongness for her smartness, for her super hot bod. Like he he clearly recognizes what a wonderful woman that she is, but he still doesn't have a clear vision of who he is in her eyes. Like to me, him starting his little speech to her as, if you haven't really noticed, I am a hot shot, is a major maturity red flag. And I think that Dr. Gilbert would point out that in a partnership, Couples are attracted to each other who have equal emotional maturity. And the fact that he is a habitual distancer with his sense of humor, with his 
depersonalization with his black and white ideals of his vigilanteism, I think that he's just not like that's just not going to be attractive to her. I think, and we're probably going to talk about this in our next Dick and Babs episode, but Robin needs to have a relationship with somebody else mm. before he can ever consider talking uh, romantically to Barbara Gordon. Oh, yeah. He needed a, a couple times up to bat. Yeah, yeah. Well, he needs somebody who is on his maturity level. He has you, some lessons to learn. He, I, yeah. I agree with that. I yeah. see that. And uh, that lady's coming. Starfire. So, Brad, we are now reaching the end of this particular session for Dick and Babs. I feel like they've made a lot of progress. We've learned a lot. What advice would you have for Dick Grayson and or Barbara Gordon at this point in their story? Uh, I don't know if I have advice for Barbara Gordon. I definitely have advice for Dick Grayson. I think he needs to look inward. I think he needs to reevaluate how he is perceived by others, especially the, the person that he is lusting for. And I think really that's where his relationship begins. He sees this dominoed dare doll and he wants to get with her. And yes, we do see growth from Batman family number one to Batman uh, family number 13, the outsider issue mm -hmm. where he confesses his soul to a sleeping Barbara Gordon, but it's not enough. And like, we're certainly judging him as the reader in that moment. And I think he needs somebody to judge him. I think maybe if I had any advice to give to Barbara Gordon, I think she needs to be even more forthright in telling him what, uh, what a dope he is, or at least what a child he, he, how, how much of a child he's coming off as. I think a lot of the issue is that he is a teen Titan. Yes, yes. He is right full of these like raging hormones. And when you're at that age and stage, you don't really understand what romance or a true partnership is about. We know from Dr. Gilbert, really the purpose of a partnership is that you guys help each other regulate mm -hmm. your anxiety through this crazy whirlwind that is life, that you're there to be strong for each other and to give over to each other when life is too much. Right now, his emotional sponge is full of anxiety water. He is over-concerned with how he's perceived. He wants to be seen as a man. He wants to be seen as an equal and partner to Batman. He wants to appear to be a, a, a sexual being in Barbara's eyes. And he's just not He's just not partnership material quite yet. Well, I th yes, I agree. The Bat family is growing at this point and is still in the process of solidifying. And they all need each other. And it's like... Um, it's like we just we've been watching Curb Your Enthusiasm, right? Yeah. And Larry David starts to date the hostess at the restaurant, and you know it, Richard Lewis's buddy's like, you know, you don't crap where you eat. Mm -hmm. Like this is your family. You really shouldn't be mixing romance wallets forming, if at all. They, they, I mean, it is business. Barbara's not wrong. They have a job to do, and it's a job that is really important, and she cannot be distracted by boyish things. And clearly, the flirtations are fun to read, and the, the, the audience responded well to them, and eventually, a romance can form within this 
special family unit, but it takes time. It takes decades or at least years in comic book uh, time. So is there anything from this episode, either from Dick and Babs or from Dr. Gilbert, that you'd like to try and apply to our relationship? Well, I mean, I think... Uh, just going back to Dick Grayson and need to reevaluate himself. I think that is something that you have to constantly do. You have to look inward all the time, especially when you're having conflicts with your partner. You know, why am I behaving this way? Where is my anger coming from? Where is my frustration coming from? Where is my partner's anger coming from? Where is my partner's frustration coming from? And I, I think reevaluation is crucial to resolving conflict. Yeah, and that idea of individualizing. Mm -hmm. Like, when you feel those symptoms of pufferfish, when you feel, oh, I'm getting frustrated, and you go outside of yourself to observe the frustration, it does really diffuse something that feels like a really volatile situation sometimes. And you have to step back. Mm -hmm. Like, when you're in the heat of it, that's hard to do, but sometimes you just gotta go, like, time out, Let me go think on this for a second. And it's something that I do a lot. And we've talked about on this podcast. I brood. And, you know, what I'm trying to work on is how do I get to the stage of internalization uh, and and figuring out my emotions without shutting you out? Without with me saying, like, Lisa, give me five minutes. (laughs) You did do something during our recording today that I really appreciated. And um, it was when we had to do a couple of takes to get something just right. And we we had, we had a misunderstanding and you were starting to get kind of inside of yourself. And then you said out loud, you said, I'm getting frustrated. Mm. And as soon as you said the emotion out loud, then we could, in that moment, Everything was diffused and we were able to address something that was boiling in between us. After I, think, I said that, did you go, aha, I'm going to save this for the end of the episode? No, okay. no. Literally, I just had the revelation. Okay. <laughs> but but I do think it's like um, my patron saint, Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, his famous quote, if it's mentionable, if it's manageable. I know that uh, Dr. Gilbert says like, You know, it's not super important what the emotion is and where exactly is the root of that emotion. But I do think that there is something to just like just taking a moment to say, hey, I'm having an emotion right now. I'm having a reaction. Can we address this reaction? Can we diffuse this reaction? I think that's super valuable. For me, what I took away when I was reading Dr. Gilbert and and applying it to Dick and Babs is that the idea is it's part of my responsibility as a person in a partnership to make sure that I diffuse some of my own anxiety and I do my best to at least keep part of my sponge dry if I can control it. Because if I'm, because I tend to be um, a little bit, I, I'm an intense person. I, I have an anxiety disorder already, and I'm also a perfectionist, and I'm also super preoccupied with how I'm perceived all the time. I mean, I'm very, like, anxious all of the time, self-centered. And it's part of my responsibility to deal with my anxiety so that when you are having issues, Brad Gullickson, when you have a little extra emotional water, that I have, I have some room to take on that for you. Yeah, yeah. Like, 
um, it's not enough that you go like, I have a partner, I can now push my anxiety on them. Like part part of it is I have to process my anxiety, so yeah. I'm available for it's you. It's a give and take. It's a give and take. Yeah. That is the end of this session, this episode with Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon. We have so much exciting stuff coming up. Let's let our listeners in a little bit. So next week, we're going to take another pause uh, on Dick and Babs because we have another really rad Creator Corner episode. We're being joined by Tom Scioli, the author of some of my favorite comics, um, Transformers versus G.I. Joe for IDW. If you've not read that, you need to do so. It's wilder than anything the Bronze Age could have ever imagined. <laughs> uh, Godland with Joe Casey, um, uh, GoBots, uh, uh, Fantastic Four Grand Design. And coming up on July 14th is the publication of his amazing graphic biography on Jack Kirby, The Epic Life of the King of Comics. Lisa and I have both read it already. It is so beautiful. It's probably my favorite comic of 2020 so far. It's, I mean, it means a lot to me. And coming from Tom Scioli, uh, it means even more, right? So be on the lookout for that. That's next week. And the week after that, we're going to return to our current comic couple and we'll be entering perhaps my favorite era in the relationship between Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon, the post-killing joke Nightwing and Oracle era. We'll briefly go over the events of the Alan Moore and Brian Boland story from the 80s, but our main focus will be the Batman Chronicles number five, aka Oracle year one. And while there's no Robin in that issue, it's essential for filling out the character of Barbara Gordon after the atrocity of the killing joke. Then we'll dive over to Nightwing Volume 2, Number 2 from 2007. This one features a critical exchange between Dick and Babs, also during the Nightwing Oracle era. And Lisa, I know you're going to be sad not to have any dynamite duo in it, but there's flashbacks. We're going to get some Robin and Batgirl in that issue still. Sweet. I am so excited for these upcoming episodes, but uh, it's it's time to get out of here. Let's drop through the trap door and <laughs> ask our listeners, where can they send their words of affirmation to Brad Gullickson? Uh, you can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. Don't forget, you can email the podcast by writing to cbccpodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. And guys, we've really appreciated the reviews that we've been getting through iTunes, as well as some letters through uh, our Gmail account. It's been really cool. And uh, we've got lots of tweets. Really appreciate you guys all sharing the love. But Lisa. Yes? Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you this week? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. And you can commit to this podcast by following us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast, by subscribing to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes. And while you're on iTunes, why not give us the gift of five stars? It's free. It really warms our hearts and it helps the pod. So until next time, gang, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. To me, that's a major maturity red flag. Yeah, I think, uh, and, and we'll probably talk about this in our neck, dick, and babs. Neck, neck, dick, and bab. Neck, 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 neck,